Otani, 19 innings pitch, six hits allowed, one run to start the year. He walked five tonight in his walk now and does it in his first three starts. Is he effectively wild? Yes, so he has now allowed two or fewer runs in each of his last 10 starts. That's a new franchise record. Number one fan grass baseball podcast. This stat cast is stat blast. TOPS plus when the stats need contrast. Zips and steamer for the forecast. Coming in hot, big boss on a hovercraft. No notes. Minor league free agent draft. Burn the ships. Flames jumping for a nap. Cow femur. Boning on the bat shaft. Megan's on the butt feet. Never say your hot seat. Games are always better with the pivot table spreadsheet. No ads. Subscribers will support us. Vroom, vroom fast on your slog to rigor mortis. Hello and welcome to episode 1992 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangrass. Hello, Meg. Hello. How are you? Are you healthy? Have you strained or fractured anything? Are you on the injured list? Uh, only, you know, like spiritually. <laughs> yeah, just the usual chronic nagging issues, but but nothing that uh, is going to sideline you the way that so many players. So many. What is going on here? This is uh, like there's a rash of injuries in spring training, and then yeah. now season started. Suddenly, everyone's going down in some real bummer injuries too. Yeah. Not that any injury is good news, but right. some particularly disappointing ones. I, I guess yeah. prime among them, O'Neill Cruz, who I, yeah. I feel like feel like O'Neill Cruz had ascended or was about to ascend to main character status. Yeah. My my arbitrary designation of who the main characters in MLB are at any given time. Like yeah. felt like he was just about there. And now that is on hold for four months, it sounds like. Yeah. It, it <laughs> It's just such a bummer. Like you said, it seemed like he was really starting to emerge and like turn a corner is is probably too strong because it's not as if he was always like terrible or anything last year. But like Cruz is a guy whose profile has like obvious volatility and uncertainty built into it. And I feel like we have spent you know, the last year basically, or at least, you know, back half of last year after he was called up trying to figure out like, who is O'Neill Cruz? Who's he going to be? What is he going to settle into as sort of his like baseline of performance? And we were, you know, we were only what, like 40 plate appearances in when he got injured. So it wasn't like we had a, a complete answer to that question, but it did feel like we were starting to get some clarity and there were some aspects of, his profile that were really encouraging. And so it it just is, it's just a bummer because I was really looking forward to seeing that sort of evolve over the course of the season. And, you know, it's not that he's expected to miss the entire year, but he's going to be out for, you know, a good stretch here. And so it's just, uh, it's really, it's really a 
bummer. Also, like anytime the word fibula is involved, yeah, it was tidy sample, but there were some encouraging signs, right? Because yeah. we we're all watching his plate discipline yes. and his strikeouts and his walks, and some of that yes. stuff had started to improve last season, but. Correct. In this teeny tiny sample, everything was trending in the right direction and the swing decisions were looking better and the walks were up and the strikeouts were down. And with him particularly, just because we know he can hit the ball so hard when he hits it. So hard. (laughs) That the fact that he was hitting it more, that seemed very encouraging because with someone like him, I mean, his WRC plus 107 was basically exactly the same as last year's 106. So it's not like he was off to an incredible start, but with someone like him, you don't have to worry about the contact quality. You have to worry about the contact frequency. And that looked like it was going to head in the right direction and maybe a breakout could come yeah, and he can break out when he returns, of course, but he's yeah. going to miss most of this season at last. And I'm sure they won't rush him back. So who knows? Like maybe he just comes back for the stretch run in September or something, right. depending on how he heals. But it's particularly disappointing because it seems like for him, like all the physical skills and tools are there. He just needs reps. It seems like, like right. he needs to see pitches. He needs plays at shortstop, like for the pirates to evaluate whether he can stick there, but also just to get that experience. Yeah. And so now he's being deprived of it. And, you know, he's uh, 24 and a half or so. So he's young, but he's not extraordinarily young. Right. So you want him to see those pitches and now he's going to not see those pitches for some time. And I know the Pirates are off to a strong start, but you figure that they'll play like the Pirates at some point and sure. O'Neill Cruz would be one of the draws on a team that is playing like the Pirates. Right. So yeah, it sucks all around. Yeah. And, you know, in uh, I think that given their their likely return to pirateness at some point here, you know, they were probably viewing this year the same way that that I was just talking about, like, let's use this as an opportunity to gather information because there are decisions that might need to be made when it comes to Cruz and the position he ultimately ends up playing. And if you can make a a determination that you feel confident in sooner rather than later, well, then you just give him more opportunity to transition to another position if he ends up playing a corner. So like there, it's not like they are going to miss him because I expect Pittsburgh to be playing October baseball, at least it does. Does the regular season bleed into October again this year? Am I able to say October baseball? With <laughs> it impunity? would be nice if we could, if we could do that, but Goodness. I think, I think there's still October regular season games uh, this year. So. People know what I mean though. When yeah. I say October baseball, there's always yeah. one, there's always one smart ass, but people generally <laughs> know what I mean. But it, you know, the reason this is a hit to Pittsburgh is not because, you know, they would have otherwise been, you know, in the thick of a race and and likely to contend for a postseason spot. But because I think particularly if you want to maximize the guys you have when you do get to a point where you're saying like, hey, this is our our next good competitive core. We're ready to try to contend. If you can go into that window of contention with answers like, is O'Neill Cruz a shortstop or not? Is he going to be able to make sort of acceptable levels of contact? If you go in knowing the answers to that, you're in a better position because if the answer to, say, the contact question is, no, this is going to be a persistent problem, well, you know, maybe that informs other roster decisions. And certainly if you can't play shortstop, then then you have some, you know, choices that you need to make there. And they're just, they and 
him will be denied the opportunity to sort of put some real clarity around those questions this year. So it's just a shame. Plus, as we said, when he hit that home run, it's yeah. just, it doesn't make sense for a man with levers this length to have mm-hmm. that speed he has. So <laughs> it's just a, it's a bummer for, for Pittsburgh fans. I imagine most keenly, certainly for O'Neill Cruz, most keenly, but it's, it's a, a drag for all of us too. Ben Clemens is going to be doing this thing this season where he sort of highlights a couple of stories that aren't quite article length, but that are interesting to him every week. And of course he led that off with O'Neill Cruz for his first one. And then like on Sunday, it all, well, it all came tumbling down, well, Ben, but at least got it in before it yeah, was too exactly. late. <laughs> but the, the last game of the Pirates regular season is October 1st. So they oh. just spoiled it for you. <laughs> but anyway, Cruz out for a while with the fractured, fractured ankle. And that was a weird play yeah. too, because it like benches cleared, right? There yeah. wasn't a, a brawl. It was just a general milling about, but it was not a, like a dirty slide or anything. It was a, a bad slide, I think in the yeah. sense that like Technically, it was not well executed. Yeah. You know, he sort of like realized that, oh, I should slide like when he was almost there, which, you know, given how long his stride length is, I guess he has to recognize that it's time to slide earlier than most people do. So maybe he was just a little slow on the uptake this time. Anyway, he kind of barreled into the catcher and the catcher was not pleased about that and was yeah. kind of like jawing at him while he was lying there with a fractured ankle, which was weird. I mean, I'm sure he didn't know he had a fractured yeah. ankle, but there was just a, a general, wah, wah, we're upset, rabble, rabble. And actually there was another injury on the play because White Sox reliever Joe Kelly yeah. <laughs> strained his groin running in from the bullpen to do the traditional relievers run in to stand there, right? We're on our way. We're on our way. <laughs> yeah. And he was thwarted on his way because, uh, you know, he's, I don't know that he's, uh, he's not old enough to straight a groin running and trotting in from the bullpen, but yeah. that's what happened. So Joe Kelly is out now with that ignominious injury. And then the White Sox already banged up in other ways because Aloy Jimenez was on the IL uh, as he often is, right? With the strained hamstring, yeah. the thought was like, oh, he'll be DHing now and we won't have people playing out of position and then we'll be healthy. And now he's hurt. Tim Anderson is hurt with a knee issue too. Yohan Mankata's dealing at least with some day-to-day stuff. So they're up to their old hijinks from last season health-wise. And then around the rest of the league, you had Adam Duvall, who has fractured a wrist in not the most serious way. He's not going to have to have surgery, but he's still going to miss some significant time. And he had a a wrist injury that cost him a lot of last year too, right? So that's not a great sign. And he was off to an incredible start, just a torrid start at the plate. Literally the best start in baseball among position players. Right, yeah. And the Red Sox need him. I mean, we talked about how weird it is that he is now a full-time center fielder at his age for like the first time, basically. We did a a sort of a stat blast about just moving to center field late in your career the way that Adam Duvall has successfully. But 
the Red Sox, I mean, already down Trevor Story for a right. chunk of the season. Gosh, I mean, they're like playing Rob Ref Snyder out in center yeah. now. Like it's pretty bleak up the middle for that team. They're like calling up Bobby Dalbeck and people like, can Bobby Dalbeck play short? Like they're just they're up to like the third and fourth stringers up the yeah. middle, having lost Xander Bogarts and, and already coming into the season sort of shorthanded with Story's injury. So yeah, things uh, not looking so hot on the depth chart for the Red Sox right now. Yeah, it it does not it does not look good, you know, when you are sitting there dependent on the idea of him being like a really great center fielder and then he's like pretty good and then you're like, Oh my gosh, I really miss Adam Duval in center. It's like, what are we doing yeah. here? Yeah. I, and and <sighs> Ian Anderson having Tommy John surgery now, which yeah. Man, pitchers. I, we used to do this exercise at the Ringer where we would rank the 25 players under 25 every spring. Yeah. And I used to do it with Bobby Wagner and Zach Cram and Michael Bauman. And Bauman was always higher on pitchers than the rest of us were. So we would always make fun of Bauman for like putting Sixto Sanchez up at the top of his list and then Sixto Sanchez would get hurt. Not that we were like happy that Sixto Sanchez got hurt, but sure, we were so. all very much, uh, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect sort nope. of, you know, when you're ranking top talents under a certain age, uh, we were having very few pitchers and pitchers very low on our list, whereas Bauman would be bumping them up. But Ian Anderson, I think when we ranked them last spring going into the 2022 season, we were all pretty high on him and we all had yeah. Ian Anderson. We were like, okay, this guy, we can count on this guy. <laughs> like the, Ian Anderson, yeah, he's the exception to not trusting pitchers because they always get hurt or something goes wrong. And then look what's happened since then. Sadly, yeah. he was missing a lot of last season, had a five ERA when he was pitching and now Tommy John surgery. So yeah. he's going to miss all of this year and probably a good chunk of next year too. So seemingly, yeah. I mean, Atlanta has depth and they have pitchers and they'll probably be all right. But his career, his very promising career has been derailed in a pretty significant way over the past year. Yeah, it's really too bad. I mean, I think given, you know, he didn't start in the rotation, right? And you, you noted the underperformance. So you kind of wondered if something was going on, but we didn't necessarily know it was anything quite this severe. But yeah, it's just, it's really a bummer. I mean, like, you know, stuff like that happens and then you're like, oh, well, Zach Eflin only has lower back tightness. So who, right. you know, the Rays really dodged a bullet there. It's like, this yeah, is... or Michael Harris also has right. back issues. Yeah. Yeah. Although I always look, I'm not saying I know anything. I just know what it feels like to be 36. Yeah, but Michael um, Harris the second does not know what it's like to be 36. Well, <laughs> he he has a better sense of it than than most does, yeah. young men his age, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's it's just you there's the absence in the present and then you worry about stuff recurring like not to say that they will for Michael Harris, but sometimes back stuff is persistent, you know, they gosh, it's like you might you might be able to get guys back when they have wrist stuff, but what you know, those those little bird bones, Ben, mm, they do bones, yeah. they do people in. They mm -hmm. they sap people of power. They are so vulnerable. Those little tiny dumb bird bones. <laughs> Why are we built like this? So it's just it's it's really quite it's really quite something. It's really mm -hmm. a quite something sort of bummer. 
You know, yeah. I'm looking at like our injury tracker, Tim Anderson, Duval, and then, you know, there are the smattering of relievers that you expect in O'Neill Cruz, and you have Seth Brown on Oakland, which is too bad because he's like actually a big leader and they need as many of those as they can get. And Mitch Garver is hurt. And then you have more relievers and we're going to have to wait to see if Andres Munoz's two-seamer works. And then, you know, Packy Naughton is still just on the Cardinals and not the Red Sox, yeah. which is not the most important thing about ha- him having a strained forearm, but is a thing I remember. <laughs> Every time I see his name, yeah, you know, Herman Marquez has forearm issues now. Come right. on, what is going on here? Yeah. I mean, I know like lamenting injuries, injuries are, are sort of just a constant state. Sure. I mean, someone's always hurt, someone's always getting hurt. It's, yeah. like, it's like when people lament uh, the death of a few celebrities at the same time, and people talk about like the rule of three, yeah, and it's like, oh, threes. yeah, two celebrities. I got news for you, like. All the celebrities are going to die. <laughs> like we, wow. we, we all are, you know, like I'm not the most morbid person on this podcast <laughs> in its history. But, you know, I feel like when when we're all like, oh, it's it's three at a time. Like it's a comforting thought to think that it might be only three because eventually right. it's all of them. <laughs> so I, it's it's almost like we're we're like, they can't, not another one. No, uh, someone else died. What what else? Come. Uh, Come on. Like, I, I thought a couple of people died. I thought that was it. Like, it's not going to stop. <laughs> I guess O'Neill Cruz has, has caused me to, like, suffer some existential you, crisis here. Yeah, but, you're – what does it mean anything? Does any of it mean anything? <laughs> but – here we are just lamenting this guy hurt his back. and the, I mean, yeah. we could do that almost every episode if we wanted to. Someone's always right. uh, tweaking something or pulling something. It's just a constant state of yeah. being in MLB. It, this is uh, a bit of an injury stack. This is a, a bunch just piling up all yes. at once. And, and it's always bad news, but it's also not news that – guess what? Not everyone is going to make it through the season intact. You know, it's yeah. it's almost like we're treating it as if the baseline is uh, everyone's healthy and it's going to be great. And we're going to get to see all the good players playing healthy all season long. That is never, ever the case, which I think is why sometimes at the end of a season, if a team had a ton of injuries, they're always reluctant to use it as an excuse or they're reluctant to to cite it as an excuse but they always find a way to bring it up they're like sure we're not gonna make any excuses here but you know and it's fine to make it that excuse i think i've always said if you had a lot of injuries uh sure go ahead and use that as an excuse if you were particularly snake bitten by injuries that year then that can be the difference between a successful season and not or first place or second place so i don't have any issue with uh people saying we had a real rough injury year this year but the point is that uh someone is sadly always getting hurt and t- succumbing to human frailties yeah it just feels like they are um that there have been a number of ones on uh, concerning guys who either were performing really well or were promising or play important roles on their teams uh, or mm-hmm. could. And so, it, you know, maybe in this moment we feel them slightly more keenly yes. than we do at other times of year where we're like, oh, yeah, that guy's hurt. He's yeah. hurt again or whatever. Right. And I will say, Ben, I know you have an evolved sensibility when it comes <laughs> to teams. Maybe we don't want to say making an excuse, but – um offering explanations for their underperformance. But Mm. um, I don't think everyone is as open-minded as you, and certainly very few people have contemplated death with the depth that you just demonstrated. (laughs) So I think that that's why they 
can be a little wishy-washy about it because they're like, yeah, I don't want you to snark at us. We're snark proof. And of course, mm-hmm. no one is snark proof. Yeah. It's the internet. Yeah. So I think you're right, though, that we feel everything most keenly at the start of the yeah. season. And I think that can be true in the opposite direction, too, when things are going great for you. Right. Like the Rays, for instance, right? Yeah. Now, How about them Rays? <laughs> The Rays, uh, they've been a bit banged up, too. I mean, they have their injuries as well. But The aforementioned they, Zach Eflin among indeed, them. Indeed, right? yeah. And Tyra Glasnow is uh, still not pitched right. this season. And, of course, Shane Baz is out for the year. I mean, Jose everyone. series dinged up. Yeah, right. But it has not slowed them down thus far. They are 10-0 as we speak on Tuesday. They'll either be 11-0 or... The horror, 10 and 1, they will have lost a game by the time some people hear this. That is conceivable. But it's sort of in the same genre, I guess, where a 10-game winning streak is is good at any point. But if it comes in the middle of a season, you don't make that much of it. Like, 10 is is, good. It's special. Like, it's obviously a story surrounding that team. It's maybe not national news that everyone is paying attention to the way it is when you're 10 and oh because when you're sure. 10 and oh you're perfect you're right. undefeated you have not lost no there's, not not an error to be found <laughs> yeah there's something that's much much more impressive about going from oh and oh to 10 and oh than going from i don't know like 60 and 45 to 70 and 45 whatever it is like when there are a bunch of, of tallies in the last column and you're just tacking on to the win column then it's nice, but it's not nearly as eye-catching. So when you have a streak to start a season or even to start a career, right? Like Jordan Walker with his uh, 10-game hitting streak to start a career, which I think 17 is the record. Well, we know Jordan Walker is good, or we certainly thought he was. That's why he's there. And so this has maybe only confirmed what we thought. And we knew that the Rays were good, right? So have they moved your appraisal of how good they are? Or is this just, well, they're off to a nice start. And also they were playing really lousy teams <laughs> for the majority of that time. So, you know, you probably would have like expected them to go seven and three or something during that stretch, right? At least because, you know, they were playing the Nationals, uh, they were playing the Tigers, they were playing the A's, and then they won one against the Red Sox, right? Who are shorthanded right. themselves. So Famously so. Yeah. <laughs> so so these are terrible teams, uh, which is not to say that they cannot win a game. And the Rays were totally just trouncing. Dominant. Everyone, you know, so winning up, up until they beat the Red Sox won nothing. Yeah. They won every game before that by four or more runs. They beat the A's in back-to-back games, 11 to nothing. So as they say, that's what good teams do. They yes, beat up on bad teams, but they, do. they don't do it. Every day and in every game, and the Rays have been doing that. Have been doing that. Now, I have to say something before I answer your question, which is they have, in fact, made four errors. So there are four errors to be found, Uh but really isn't the bigger error mine, me, Meg. (laughs) Um, I think the following, which is that um, is it as impressive? Is it as indicative of dominance as it would be if they had gone 10 and 0 and the teams they had been facing were like the Dodgers and the Braves and the Blue Jays. I mean, it's not as impressive. I don't know that if a team 
like the Rays went 10 and 0 against all very good competition that I would necessarily think that it tells us something new either. I think that 10 game winning streaks are just always going to have some amount of like, you know, like you win 10, oh, a lot of, uh, every team wins at least 10 games, Ben, spoiler yeah. alert. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think we get enamored to your point with like the sequencing. Is it as impressive as them, you know, taking it to teams that are like really good that we think of as really good squads? I mean, n- no, I guess not. Um, I think the the margins um, that they have won by have been pretty impressive. And so it isn't as if they are 10-0 and 0 against bad teams and they squeaked by every time, you know. Like mm-hmm. they're, like you said, apart from that 1-0 victory yesterday, like they're really – they're really winning, you know. There's not a lot of doubt involved yeah. in in this. I do find it interesting that they like the the way they're winning. There's like a lot of home runs being hit by this yeah. team, which has not, you know, in the last couple of years always been like their forte. So like that is a, a little bit interesting. Now again, mm-hmm. it's, it's perhaps it's just like they faced bad pitching and so they clustered a bunch of home runs together and well, there's that, but you know, there's, there's a little bit of intrigue for me there. Um, but no, I mean, when you win 10 games, like you've been doing something right. And they've been doing a lot of some things right in that stretch of 10 games. And I think particularly when you're in a division like the East where you do have a really good Jays team and you have a good Yank, a really good Yankees team and you have like at, at the very least a pesky Orioles team and then like mm-hmm. you know a Red Sox team that I expect to not be very good particularly now that they're so hurt like it is meaningful to bank wins because oh, yeah. they count the same come October at any point in October mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so you you want to build cushion for yourself because you're going to face stiff competition within the division. There are a number of teams in the American league that I think are, are really strong wildcard contenders, some of which have played like it so far and some of which haven't. And so like, does it mean that they're the best team in baseball? No, I don't think that they're the best team in baseball. Does it mean that they have you know, a nice little bit of cushion built in after 10 games. Yeah, sure they do. Mm-hmm. They yeah. can squander that cushion or they can keep building on it. You know, I think that we expect that division to have some back and forth and to have the first place spot change around a couple of times, but it's not unprecedented for divisions that are thought to be like really strong and likely to yield competition to end up with a team that just kind of runs away from with it at the beginning. And then, you know, you still get wild card squads out of it, but it's it's good. Jeff is going to be furious. Cause like, <laughs> I'm not, a, I don't really believe in jinxing. Cause if mm-hmm. I had that kind of power, why would I use it this way? You know, like, well, why would that be the way that I use it? But, um, it does feel a lot like we are inviting the baseball gods to say, mm, they're going <laughs> to lay an egg. It's going to be a stinker. They're going to have a, Stinker. We should talk about the Diamondbacks, not right now, but at some point, because I'm looking at our at the standings and I'm like, you know who has the same record as the Atlanta Braves? The Arizona Diamondbacks. Yeah. Your oh, so surprise pick, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not surprised that they're doing well. 
you picked them to surprise. I but did pick them to surprise. Really, like the one nothing win that the Rays had over the Red Sox, that was impressive because it was at least a real team, a right. real opponent sort of. Yeah. But but also because Josh Fleming pitched that game and, and he gave up one hit and no runs over four innings. He was like the bulk guy in that game. And he's like their last starter. Right. And he was the weak link in that rotation. Like he gave up five runs in three innings in his first start. And even then it was like, okay, maybe they have one weak link in that rotation. Then they'll get Tyler Glesno back and then they'll be golden. But then Josh Fleming pitched great too. Yeah. And everyone in that bullpen. So they have done it in a really impressive way. Just the number of arms that they have. And yes, the offense, which historically has not been their strength, right? And so you see Wander Franco off to an incredible start. You're like, okay, this is the year. This is the, the wonderful. Franco just runs roughshod over the the league season that we've been waiting for. So who knows? But there's a fairly small sample of teams that have started ten and zero because uh, again we're we're talking about the very first sequence of the season. And so if you looked up like all teams that had ten game winning streaks at some point in the season, there would be many of them, and their collective record wouldn't be all that impressive because that happens often if you can choose any ten game slice of the season. But obviously, it's going to be rare to win ten in a row to start the season. There's just a, a much smaller pool of potential times that you can do that. So. Right. I think the Rays are the seventh team that have started a season. Yes. 10 and 0. And, and they're the, the first in the wild card since era. The Brewers, right? In like right. 80. The 87. Or yeah, yeah. 87 Brewers. And I mean, case in point, I think the 87 Brewers started out winning 13 in a row. And yes. then they lost 12 in a row. Yes. <laughs> they, they lost like 18 of 20. So so who knows? Like we could be talking about the slumping Rays in two weeks. But, but you look at teams that started 10 and 0. None of them turned out to be bad teams, but they right. didn't all turn out to be great teams either. You had right. the the 1955 Boys of Summer Dodgers who won the World Series, and then you had the 62 Pirates who went 93 and 68 and finished fourth in the NL. You have the 66 Cleveland team finished 500, 81 and 81, fifth in the AL. The 81 A's. 64 and 45, they finished first in the AL West, and then they lost in the ALCS. 82, Atlanta went 89 and 73, won the NL West, but lost in the NLCS. And then those 87 Brewers who went 91 and 71 and missed the playoffs. So these are not super teams we're talking about here. So getting off to a a start like this does not mean that you're going to have just an incredible record-breaking season. But as you said, in this division with as tight as it was forecasted to be, if we want to play our premature looking at the playoff odds game that we did even more prematurely in a recent episode, the Rays obviously are the big winners when it comes to playoff odds changes since the start of the season. They have basically doubled their division winning odds. Like they're 50-50. They're like a coin toss now to win the AL East. So they have basically doubled 
their division odds, and they've basically doubled their World Series odds, yeah. too, since the start of the season. And their playoff odds are, are way up. Uh, they're, you know, at like 91%. So, again, I think most people expected the Rays to be a, a playoff team and a contender, yeah. at least in the AL yeah. East, when the season started. So, it's just that they went 10-0 and while the Yankees went 6-4 and and the Blue Jays went 6-4. and And so, that's going to help, obviously. So, yeah, they have improved their odds that is obvious but as far as uh is this uh, something that we have to make an enormous deal out of uh, probably not yet just uh kind of put it in perspective imagine medium that it was deal. yeah medium deal if this was if this were happening in july would we all be uh, aghast at this and and hyperventilating probably not so the fact that it has happened here you know, it, it makes you dream of, wow, this could be an incredible season. It 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 extends the possibility of having some sort of uh, amazing triple digit win, just wire to wire dominant season. But that's still not the likeliest outcome. It's still not the likeliest outcome, but it hasn't been. I mean, not that any team has this like really eliminated for them 10 games in, but it hasn't been eliminated as an outcome, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you're right that in the middle of the season, we tend to only really note, I think we note win streaks when they get to, let me pick an a random number and think about whether I believe it. Like, I think once a team wins like 13 in a row, then people are like, oh. And particularly if that winning streak like dramatically alters um, their playoff odds, then people go, oh. And then they (laughs) tweeted us for not believing in their team. And they're like, why didn't you believe in them? And I was like, sorry, I didn't predict that they were going to go like 13 and over that stretch. Like, yeah, (laughs) not Nostradamus over here. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, then we then we notice, or at least I do, because I got people in my menchies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like a, a multiplier effect when it happens at the start of the season. I don't know yes. what the multiplier is exactly, but it just it magnifies things. It, yes. uh, it distorts things somewhat, but yeah. that's okay. We're all excited. We're all, you know, it's the start of the season here. Yeah. We're, we're in our cups. We're, we're kind of optimistic and, and we're just uh, buying too much into things and that's fine. It's the, the early season exuberance. It's just a reflection of how happy we are that baseball season has started, at least major league baseball season. So it's okay to get a little overexcited. I think that's fine. And also uh, the Rays, they're, Outfield, I noticed, is is leading the majors in war. Probably a lot of different race units are leading the major leagues in, I would think in so. war right now just because they've been so good. But the Rays are on top. The Red Sox are third, largely because of Adam Duvall's efforts <sighs> to date. The Dodgers are in second yes. in outfield war. Now, uh, part of that is Mookie Betts, so that's not surprising. But James Outman. James Outman. Trace Thompson, Jason Hayward. Yeah. I, I mean, look, Jason Hayward has had 20 plate appearances, but also he has hit three home runs. Three home this, runs. <laughs> which, like, yep. that's that's almost enough. And and he also, I think he hit one, he had like a 112 mile per hour batted ball. Something. It was like yeah. the hardest hit ball he'd hit in five years or yes. something. And that doesn't seem like a total accident. So no. the fact that he redid his swing and he overhauled his whole setup the way that, you know, the Dodgers will do with guys, yeah. reclamation projects. And suddenly he's off to this start where he's slugging 765 and yeah. a minuscule sample. But I'm just saying like one batted ball that he hit that hard is like, well, is Jason Hayward back? Did the Dodgers fix Jason Hayward? So anyway, any 
fears of uh, can Trace Thompson keep it up? And is Jason Hayward actually going to be any good? David Peralta hasn't hit it all yet, but they no. still have had an extremely productive outfield. And James Outman has uh, looked amazing. So it's like the Dodgers. I mean, look, they're uh, neck and neck with the Padres right now. Neither of them is off to a great start. Each of them is six and five. So right. none of well, my... Well, can't compete with those Arizona, uh, Arizona well, no. Diamondbacks. So, of course know. not. Can't keep up with those, those seven and four Diamondbacks <laughs> running away with the NLS. <laughs> uh, but... But I have not uh, changed my prior significantly when it comes to the Dodgers either. And yet you look at James Altman and you look at like Miguel Vargas Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, Dodgers magic again, because Miguel Vargas is walking in a third of his plate appearance. Yeah, he sure is. (laughs) And as long as you don't look at Noah Syndergaard's line, you'll never have any doubts about Dodgers magic. (laughs) Yeah, Dodgers, uh, one of the many teams with injury issues. Anyway, just seeing like young Dodgers come out of the woodwork. Yep. Uh, not that like no one had ever heard of Miguel Vargas. Right, yeah. Outman, <laughs> was <but> a t- <laughs> Miguel Vargas was a top 100 prospect. Yeah, pretty celebrated prospects. Yep. But, but also, if if those guys uh, have great years, and if Jason Hayward, especially, like yeah. that came up, I think, on maybe our preview pod or at yeah. some point this spring, we were like, all right, if they fix Jason Hayward, yeah, then, then... Th- this is not fair. Like the, the, the Dodgers must be broken up if they fix Jason Hayward. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All signs point to him, well, not being broken, or at least no signs point to his being broken yeah. thus far. <laughs> I mean, do I expect that James Outman will continue to run a 400 BABIP? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I not. don't. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's not a thing I expect. Do I expect him to have a, you know, <laughs> does he really have an 800 slug? Good grief. <laughs> um, you know, like there, there might be some uh, candidates for regression if we were to look through his stats, Perhaps. but so far it's working great, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's, uh, man, has, has Luis Robert Jr. really not walked at all yet this year? Does he really have a 0.0% <laughs> walk rate? Wow. Mm. Okay, well, that's not the point of this segment, but that's a funny thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, they they have some they have some very good players over there. Uh, will they be enough to weather their injuries? Mm-hmm. We're gonna find out. But yeah, I look. It would be so fun if Hayward could have like a even just one sort of renaissance season to kind of reset our collective memory of him. I think that yeah. that would be that would, would be great. That. It would be so exciting. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm trying to decide who is the most surprising guy for me in our position player top 10. And I have to say, I think the answer might be Matt Chapman. Mm. Matt Chapman has a 586 Hmm, <laughs> 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 I don't think that'll last either. That Fun seems... with small sample size. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, we're, you know, everyone on here has at most like low 50s plate appearances, you know, of the guys on sort of the, the first page of our position player leaderboards. So, you know, do I expect Hunter Renfro to be the 28th most valuable position player in baseball this year? No more than I expect Victor Robles to be the 29th. So, you know, (laughs) there's going to be some moving around in here, but... You know who else is is off to a strong start in the NL West with a 421 BABIP is J.D. Davis. But in his his case, I buy it just because of the, the raw sexual energy of his new batting stance. Have you seen the no. J.D. Davis? Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> I really appreciate um, how uh, 
you know, like open to displaying this part of your personality you are. Cause you know, <laughs> if I do it, it reads differently to people and we get much weirder emails <laughs> yeah. just historically, but well, it is an energy I want to be on the pod. So I, yes, I appreciate, I will represent it, but I appreciate I, it, you get your real time reaction here to JD okay. Davis's new bad. Ex- <laughs> well, I'm ready. <laughs> which I, I am watching along with you. Okay. It looks normal at first. Yeah, it sure does. And it looks normal at the end. Oh and my then. God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, oh my. There's a, there's a thrusting that's happening uh, there. Yeah. And it's like a, a, a sensual thrusting. It's a little, yeah, there's a little <laughs> something to that. Yeah, it's uh, he sets up in a totally normal way. Like he's just a very standard, just kind of cookie cutter batting stance and then all of a sudden he starts swaying in the midsection only just very like twerky kind of but it's a little twerky yeah i mean it's no it's decidedly not that (laughs) actually not that exaggerated but (laughs) but um it it does have a bit of of the sensual to it yeah, um, and I'm sure goodness. there's some rationale. Like I'm sure he's talked about, it and he's probably like, "I'm just trying to like stay back," or you know, like there's probably some boring explanation for why mechanically he is doing this. But, but come on, I mean, our minds are going to go in the gutter when when we see this, JD. We are but human. Yeah. Um, <laughs> brings a brings a whole new meaning to the phrase rhythm method. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, <laughs> This like this would get in my head if I were a pitcher and I were throwing to this guy just thrusting at me. I I mean I don't. This would distract me. I, I mean, in fairness, Ben, he's not thrusting at not, the pitcher. No, he's that he's would th- be a totally wild stance to have. <laughs> no, Couldn't yeah. hit if you were thrusting that like way. A, a combination of like a Tony Batista just like open stance, like facing forward, and the thrusting that would anatomically be difficult to pull off i guess but but yeah this is it's demonstrative i've not seen many many stances like this it seems to be working for him so i would not change a thing if i were jd davis and i were off to the start he is (laughs) i'm trying to like make another joke in my mind about something random method no (laughs) no i'm gonna leave it be i I do always wonder because like we get new celebrations get debuted at the yeah. start of year. Like we find out what each team is going to do when it hits a homer or scores a run. Like each what team they has f- its... What they found at Goodwill that they've decided needs to yeah. live in the dugout. <laughs> right. Like uh, we found a shopping cart. I guess we're going to push people down yeah. the length of the dugout in the shopping cart. But but no, this is the time of year when we were introduced to what each of the celebratory rituals is. And so... The Angels now have a home run samurai helmet, which was Shohei Otani's idea. So they have this big, heavy, cumbersome helmet. Like, they used to have a cowboy hat. And then at the start of this year, I I think they had sort of like a straw hat. And and I guess Otani was like, nope, we got to go bigger. So they have a, a samurai helmet here. And then, like, the Brewers have their cheese head, which I, I guess it makes sense for the Brewers. But then the Orioles have their Homer hose, which has become known as the dong bong, which is great. Oh boy. I mean, I like this one, but I just, I always wonder, cause like each team has to have its signature celebration and it's a long season and you got to do this thing for six months or seven months. And 
probably like the pressures on it. And also like you have your, you know, your horns or whatever you're going to flash. Like when you get on base after doubling and you look at the dugout and you're pumped up and you do some sort of hand signal or you give yourself donkey ears or whatever it is like, there's always something. And so I wonder whether it organically arises or whether it's like put to a vote, whether there's like a, a committee, like here's right, our celebration. Yeah. Cause it's a big decision. Cause sure. you're, sort of, you're stuck with this thing. And sometimes, they evolve maybe over the course of the season or you might abandon it or replace it with something new but it's a big part of your team bonding and your team identity and you see a zillion highlights throughout the season and some of these things must get tiresome like when it's the dog days of august and you've put the samurai helmet on like 150 times already and it's like oh here we go okay i guess we gotta we gotta keep putting the helmet on because we've been doing it all season it's our thing you know it's like it's like when you have an inside joke with a friend or so or like a friend group and and maybe like one of the friends is more into it than than you are or than other and they never get tired of it and you're like yeah. all right I, I think this is played out now like we could probably uh, and then you, you see the friend and it's like, oh, we're still doing this joke again, I guess. And so I guess there's probably kind of a, a collective peer pressure, like we got to keep it going. But I, I just wonder whether at some point the enthusiasm sort Wains. of dissipates. Right. Yeah. And it's like, do we have to keep, I mean, this is our thing. So I guess we've established uh, we do the, the dong bong, the Homer hose. So we got to do it all season long now, but I don't really feel like doing it today. It's a lot of pressure, like to come up with something that you're going to want to do all season long. And then I really, I wonder about the levels of enthusiasm and how they ebb and flow over the course of the year. I think that teams should let themselves off the hook with that because baseball players shift in and out of, of, you know, like socks and beards and all sorts of things, depending on how they're playing. And I get that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you want to keep the, the good times rolling, but surely someone, someone on your team isn't hitting well and you could just pretend like, oh, we had to retire the, this thing because (laughs) he (laughs) hasn't been hitting. And so Mm. we, we wanted to shift around the vibe or whatever, you know, like it's, it's, uh, just lie to us, I guess is what I'm saying. Like if you get sick of it, you get to, you get to change it. It's not my business what you do at work. I mean, it's literally my business what they do at work (laughs) a lot of the time, but um, you know, for stuff like that, if they don't want to. But sometimes they must just keep going through the motions just out of inertia. It's just like, (laughs) you know, this is our thing. It's our trademark. We got to keep it up because, and some guys on the team are probably like super pumped to do it all season long. And then yeah. other guys are like still, still with this. But yeah. I, I just wonder, like, do you have to put it to a vote in the clubhouse if you're going to retire it or change the right. celebration? Or is it just very organic and like, all right, it seems like reading the room here, maybe, maybe it's time to switch things up. But I wonder whether there has to be a conversation, whether there's like a referendum, whether it's secret ballot. Like, are we done with the dong bong? Is it time for something new? <laughs> I like the dong bong. And, I mean, and, clearly. And look, no one's going to go back to calling it the Homer hose, guys. Like, once no, you put dong, dong bong out there, it's the dong bong. So just yeah. accept it. But also, you don't have to do it all year long if you don't want to. But that's a young team. They're, they're full of enthusiasm. They're feeling their oats. Maybe they'll keep the dong bong up all year. <laughs> You were going to say they were full of dongs. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I mean, I think that another option that is available to them is if they don't want to lie to us, they can lie to each other, which is, you know, someone can just be like, oh, we left it behind. Yeah. The right. Dong lives oh, in we misplaced the Cincinnati now. Yeah, Who could possibly right. say where it's gone? <laughs> so, you know, I think that at some point, if it feels like it's starting to wear, but there is, say, a concern about what it might mean, you know, cosmically to adopt mm-hmm. a new uh celebration in this a game that is governed by uh, arbitrary and capricious gods um that it just needs some veteran leadership to stand up and say i don't know i think we left it behind you know sometimes you go to a hotel you leave all your suits there and then you just gotta buy new suits you know Mm -hmm. we gotta buy a new hat new (laughs) dong bong a new and since we have to get a new one anyway like do we yeah. want to get a new one? Do we want to yeah. try it? Does, does me having lost it, don't ask why I'm doing air quotes. Why would you even <laughs> ask me that? <laughs> right. But does me having lost it mean that yeah. we have to like uh, get a new thing so as not to bring with us the, mm-hmm. you know, rage of the left behind mystical object? It's very right. complicated. Who knows how yes. these things work? I've done that when it's time for my daughter's bedtime and she gets in her head that maybe she wants to play with a certain toy. It's like, you know, if it's not in her line of sight, right. then uh, maybe we can just uh, pretend to, uh, we don't know where that is right yeah. now. And, you know, we'll find it tomorrow. Find it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So a few other items. Uh, first of all, I, I guess we should give our due to the Rocket City Trash Pandas and uh, their spectacular <sighs> Amazing. Up over the weekend, which yeah. was really fun. This was uh, a no-hit loss unlike any other, right? So the Trash Pandas, an Angels affiliate, they lost, what was the final score? Was it seven to three? Oh gosh, what a good, what a good, I mean, (laughs) we'll keep saying numbers. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because the point is they gave up seven runs is is the point. They gave up seven (laughs) runs without allowing a hit. Yeah, they sure did do that. Which is uh, unprecedented, at least, you know, in the majors. uh, There's the Andy Hawkins game in 1990 with the Yankees where they gave up four runs and lost without allowing a hit. But seven runs, that's really something. And this was a a seven-inning game because it was a doubleheader. It was game one of a doubleheader, so they had to then play game two after that game unraveled. But... At first, I thought, oh, seven innings, uh, that's not as fun because a a no-hitter is not as impressive in seven innings. But really, I don't think it matters that much. It doesn't really detract from how silly and strange this was because the point was that they gave up seven runs. It doesn't really matter how many innings they did it over. No no hits were allowed, but many runs were allowed. (laughs) So Bauman has a, a good full recap of it, and you can find... Pitching Ninja did a montage of just everything going horribly wrong. But it it started with Ben Joyce, who is this incredibly hard-throwing reliever who looked like he might make the Angels out of spring training, and perhaps he'll be up at some point this year. But, you know, he throws like 105, and he is somewhat wild, as you might intuit from the fact that he is not in the major leagues already, because if he throws 105 and had pinpoint control and command, then he'd probably be a big leaguer, but not so much. But 
it wasn't even really that much his fault. I mean, yeah, he was wild and he walked a couple guys, but he also could have gotten out of it quite easily. He got a strikeout. He got what should have been a routine fly ball and it was dropped. It was dropped like the Yoshida fly ball to Ryan McKenna in that Orioles Red Sox game was that Adam Duvall then followed with the walk-off. This was the same sort of thing. The trash pandas were up three, nothing heading into the seventh, the last frame. And then, yeah, it was seven, five, the final <laughs> having not allowed a hit. So oh, boy. things just went uh, horribly, horribly wrong. So no hits allowed, but seven runs. I mean, there were hit by pitches. There were errors. There were wild pitches. There were walks, uh, all the various ways that you can let people on base and let them score without allowing a run. So yeah. it was uh, it was quite special. I I imagine that if you're in the midst of something like that, once you get to like probably the third run, the strangeness of the moment lets up just just enough for you to appreciate other people likely taking note of the strangeness of the moment. Mm-hmm. And then you go, I'm going to talk about this. For, I'm going to have to talk about this for a long time. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I am, it's yeah. bad enough there's, to there's go. It's going to be like a 20th anniversary oral history yes. of this game. Right? Yes. <laughs> so. And all you can hope for when that comes around is that many of the guys involved on the trash pandas have had long and storied yes. big league careers. So they can look back on it with like, you know, the remove that you can only really enjoy when the rest of your life has like given you the gift of that moment not mattering anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> but for at least one of those guys, that's probably going to be the thing that, you know, they and we remember about their pro baseball career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't right. want to speculate about who, though. Unless you were the person on the mound, it's probably the sort of thing that you can laugh about, right? Like the rally started against Joyce and then Eric Torres was the one who came on and uh, hit three straight batters with pitches and the last one forced it a run and then there was a four pitch walk and then there was a wild pitch and then he hit another batter. So he will probably not remember that game fondly unless he goes on to have an incredible career and he can look back and laugh. But yeah. Probably everyone involved in that game, even as it's happening in that moment with five walks and four hit batters and an error and a wild pitch in that one seven run inning. (laughs) You have to have uh, sort of a sense of humor about that. Like, oh, yeah. the Trash Panda's Twitter account was like, well, we did not give up a hit in the first game of today's doubleheader. <laughs> Unfortunately, we also did not win. So there's that. They did come back to win game two of the doubleheader and they won in a shutout. So, wow. so much for momentum. They rallied quite quickly there. So they couldn't have been too down about the way that that happened because uh, they came back to win right away. Just suggests like a level of being able to put things behind you that I have never achieved even once in my entire (laughs) life. Like, you know, we've talked before about the various things that would, you know, um, stand as barriers to our ability to be professional athletes of any stripe, let alone baseball players. And to be clear, my list is long. Um, (laughs) But the number of nights I spend thinking about things that happened, you know, when I was in middle school that objectively do not matter anymore suggests that the ability to, like, wash it clean and then, you know, move on to the next game, I just wouldn't, I don't have it, Ben. I don't have Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, one of the many attributes that it takes to be a successful player. Yep. So I 
was tickled by that. Also, we got our Rob Arthur spin update yes. at Baseball Prospectus. Spin is down. Spin is so down. So the enforcement seems to be working, or at least the threat of enforcement seems to be working. And you've heard this before. <laughs> We've been here before. Yes. There's a crackdown. Spin decreases and spin to velocity ratio decreases. And then it inevitably ticks up again. But we will see whether yeah. it ticks up again or whether this downturn will actually be enduring. And of course, there is a a pre-tacked ball being tested yet again, I think, what, in double A this year. So perhaps right. they will finally crack the code there and get a pre-sticky ball that everyone likes. And then there won't have to be as much sticky stuff. But at least for now, the sticky stuff seems to have abated somewhat. And it's not like you can tell though is the funny thing i mean right. strikeouts are not up they're not demonstrably down either but the increase in strikeout rate has been more or less arrested over the past few years there's been a plateau which is a victory in itself after yeah. more than a decade of constant increases but you still see pitches constantly that you think must be some sort of wizardry like yes you know you i i can't tell like could you tell like the peak of sticky stuff and spin rates before the first crackdown versus now, let's say, when the levels have sunk to almost their low or, you know, even if we go back to the first season when enforcement first started and you really saw the bottoming out, I can't tell, you know, like visually speaking, I can't tell the difference. I know there is a difference. Yes. And yet it still seems like we're constantly seeing just otherworldly yeah. movement, right? Like, yeah. you could tell me that spin was at an all-time high right now, and I'd say, yeah, that tracks because right, have right. you seen some of these pitches people are throwing? <laughs> so it's not like, you know, I mean, I know there's there's a measurable effect and there's probably a demonstrable result when it comes to stuff and, and strikeouts and everything, but it's not as big as, as we thought it might be, I think, at the peak of, you know, kind of hand-wringing about spider tack and everything. Like, guys are still throwing, like, wiffle ball stuff out yeah. there, you know? So they don't they don't need to cheat to be as good as they are. So right. they're, they're really good regardless. I think that um, – I, I think – you're right that it is not a, an entirely easy thing to discern. I mean, I think that there are guys where maybe you notice a, a little bit, but I think the place where I tend to see the biggest difference is, isn't so much even in the pitches themselves saying like, oh, I can tell that that, you know, is spinning in 300 RPMs less than, than it was two weeks mm -hmm. ago. It's, gosh, his shirt sure is staying tucked in better now than it used to. <laughs> uh -huh, and right. his hair suddenly perfect. No need mm -hmm. to fuss with it between, between pitches. So I think all of the, all of the other little stuff, um, you tend to notice more and there's just less of that other little stuff now with the pitch clock anyway. And so I'm, I'm having a hard time discerning what of that is, well, guys feel like they need to be able to come set and be ready and deliver the pitch within a certain amount of time and how much of it is, oh, well, you know, he doesn't feel confident he can go to his gob of goo um, without it being detected now. So I, I, I don't know what my, what I'm in, I'm not able to interpret it like sort of intuitively yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And a little game theory update here when it comes to the running game and pitchers trying to deter runners from going. So Tom Tango did some analysis at his site. This is the MLB uh, StatCast uh, brain trust, Tom Tango. And he did some analysis that showed that basically so far, once one pickoff attempt is made, Mm -hmm. the success rate goes way up. So it it used to be that when you made a pickoff attempt, that depressed your success rate and also your attempt rate after that because uh, runners would be dissuaded. It's like, oh, he, he's got a good move or he's willing to throw over. Okay, I'm going to shorten up my lead a little bit and I will be less likely to go perhaps or I just won't get as good a jump and then I won't be as likely to steal that base. Now it seems like once a pickoff attempt happens, players get more successful and try to steal more often because pickoff attempts are limited. So once you know that you've used up your one, I think runners are thinking, well, many pitchers won't be willing to use their second one because once you use your second one, you're all out. And after that, if you try a further pickoff attempt, then it has to be successful. Right. Right. Or else. So, so now it seems like, his conclusion, he he said, like, statistically speaking, you would say that the solution is do not attempt to pick off on a runner ever, because once you do, then they will believe that you won't do it again, and they'll take an extra long lead, and they'll be more likely to go. Of course, if that's the, the pivot, if that's what pitchers decide to do, if they say, okay, once I throw over there once then I'm in trouble, then you could either adjust in one of two ways, I guess, because if you stopped throwing pickoff attempts altogether because you see these results, well, then guys are going to go right away. Once word gets out that you're not even going to try to pick off someone, you're John Lester, basically. Right. Then in theory, the runners will take longer leads from the first from from the get-go. So... What you could do then is be more willing to go right up to the edge and and play a game of brinksmanship here and use your second free pickoff attempt. So you got to do that. But there's going to be a a bit of a cat and mouse as there is with everything. Like Tango used the comparison of like swinging on 3-0, for instance. If if a batter never swings on 3-0, then the pitcher's just going to throw meatballs over the middle because they know they can get away with it. But whatever tendency is causing the batter not to swing on 3-0, well, once you start enticing them with a bunch of meatballs, then eventually they're going to swing in 3-0. And then things will swing back in the other direction because the pitcher will say, oh, he swung on 3-0. I guess I can't just lay one in there anymore because he'll make me pay. And so now I actually have to throw some balls on 3-0. So it's that kind of game. And I guess it's going to go back and forth all season long. But it's basically like, you know, once one pickoff attempt is made, guys like jump up a, a tier in terms of like sprint speed like it it basically turns players in one tier of sprint speed into players in a higher tier of sprint speed without any pickoff attempts it it just kind of gives them a speed boost basically right. so it's you know something to to keep track of all season long and i will be curious like it seems like maybe the the stolen bases have have started to tail off just slightly relative to the start of the season and i don't really know whether it's going to stay at a reduced level or decrease as the season goes on or whether that will plateau or whether certain teams or players aren't being aggressive enough it's going to be fun to watch this as the season goes on yeah for sure it i i don't know where 
I expect it to settle. I'm trying to decide what I, what do you think? I think uh, Rob Means uh, wrote something recently about how he doesn't think that it will be up as much as you might think because the run environment is not conducive to stealing so much, like what with all the strikeouts right. and still uh, a lot of home runs, historically speaking. Still. Yeah, and not a lot of singles. So yeah. it's just not sort of a, a scoring environment that rewards the stolen base in theory. So he thinks that that will sort of depress it. But I wonder whether you've had a reaction like this, we got an email from listener Will, a Patreon supporter, who said, just wanted to share a quick observation on one way watching baseball has changed for me with the rules changes with the extremely heightened stolen base success rate. I find myself way happier when a catcher throws someone out stealing mm. and way less sympathetic to runners getting called out for popping off the bag on replay. Will Myers just got called out on a stolen base attempt on replay in the second inning of a Reds-Phillies game. And while in past years, I'd be sad that the replay call, which wasn't exactly a cheap pop-off call, but not too far removed, overturned it. And that would discourage him from stealing again. Now I'm glad that runners like him might feel a bit held in check. It's a big flip from my rooting interest on a steal attempt from the last decade, at least. Can't think of any other rules changes that have adjusted whom I'm rooting for on a given play like this so drastically. So his sympathies, now it's like the, yeah. the pitcher and the catcher are the underdogs suddenly, yeah. and, and we're rooting for them. That is so interesting. I I don't know if I'm quite there, if only because I've, I don't know if you know this about me, Ben, but I've like always enjoyed it when a catcher naps a movie base stealer. But I do like this as an answer because it suggests to me that the rules are doing exactly what I hoped the rule changes would, which is like opening up the the sort of range of experiences that we can potentially have of the game where it felt like we were getting more and more hemmed in Mm -hmm. to a particular style of playing baseball and a particular set of outcomes. And I don't want to overstate the effect that this has had in the early going or anything like that, but it does feel like we've, we've moved maybe from a period of contraction in terms of the, the range of outcomes we might expect and the different reactions that we might have to them to a, a sort of, unfurling right like mm-hmm. that we're back in a in an opening like the the petals of a flower you know mm-hmm. kind of um expanding to to meet the sun it just feels like there's a lot more potential for different kinds of stuff uh to mm-hmm. be seen and yeah i i hadn't thought of that that like you're you know when stolen bases are a relative rarity and when we're all wanting to see like a, a really gifted speedster be able to just go that you feel active resentment toward catchers sometimes when they nab a guy you're like how dare you like we get so few of these and you're taking one away from us like what is wrong with you mm-hmm. don't you know that this is a spectator sport and now it's like oh he got him he, he nabbed him but maybe that's just um, me enjoying watching um gabriel moreno throw some guys out and be like wow he can really he can really do that yeah that could be we talked on an email show last week uh, about ways that teams or fans could disrupt the pitch timer and the yes. pitch clock just by like throwing a ball out from the bullpen or yes. throwing a beach ball from the stands. We've 
gotten some questions also, like this one from Jeremy, Patreon supporter. How long do you think it will be before we see pitchers run out the clock consecutively to give an intentional walk? Oh. I could see a situation where a reliever is warming and needs more time and the manager has the current pitcher repeatedly get pitch timer violations to oh. stretch out this process if they otherwise don't want the pitcher to face the batter. I see this as being most likely when the pitcher on the mound is a reliever who needs one more batter to reach the minimum. I expect this would be incredibly annoying and would probably yes. result in some new unwritten or written rule. But given the tendency to run out the clock in other sports, I could see it happening in MLB. I, I do wonder whether that will happen at some point. I think it will probably happen at some point, but I imagine that um, once it does, that teams will get a little memo. They'll get yeah. a little. They'll get a little note in their collective mailbox, being like, "Hey, don't do that." Anymore. Yeah, probably Be- because the the rules do give umpires like a lot of latitude to be like, "You're." Excuse an expression. You're dicking around within the context of these rules in a way that is meant to like sort of blunt their impact. Stop yeah. it, or mm-hmm. you will be assessed penalties. So, um, I I expect we will, but I think it will be fairly obvious to everyone that that is what is <laughs> yes. going on. Especially because we have a mechanism for uh, issuing intentional walks that requires throwing no pitches at all and is very mm-hmm. straightforward. And so I'm sure that like. I would imagine if this happened between innings, the umpires would be like, hey, get over here. Don't yeah. do that. And then <laughs> right. they they wouldn't be able yeah. to do it, at least not with that crew. And then and then again, you get you'd get your little memo. Yeah. And you'd get booed at, at least oh, if you were yeah. if you're the visiting pitcher. Oh <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which didn't stop uh, like Bruce Chen from throwing over to first however many times it was sure. when he did that. Like, you know, you'd get booed every time you'd do that too. And despite that peer pressure and and that fear of uh, condemnation, pitchers would still do that. But you'd be like the center of attention. And everyone in the ballpark would be like, come on, like uh, you're costing us time. Like we're now in this mindset where we don't expect baseball games to just like endlessly waste people's time basically. So like we're on a schedule here, you know, come on. And you'd just be standing out there just brazenly doing nothing, providing no entertainment value. I guess it would be kind of entertaining to see it happen once just to just hear the booze rain down. But yeah, it would, you know, take some gumption, I think, to weather the criticism that you would get for just wasting everyone's time. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you are a, a visiting player, you you come in assuming you're going to need gumption, right? Because your the virtue of your actions has very little to do with whether or not you get booed if you're yeah, a visiting true. player. It's not about that. It's about what you're wearing, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, so uh, I think that laundry. It is true. Yes. Yes. So I think that that visiting um, visiting players have to steel themselves against all sorts of um, uh, less than polite feedback, uh, mm-hmm. if, if you want to put it that way. But I imagine that the impolite feedback that would matter the most would probably come from both the umpires and the league office being like, okay, so we yeah. know what you're doing, yeah. and it goes against the spirit of the rule, so don't do it again. Although it's tricky because, you know, you're inviting the penalty that would be assessed to you to try to deter the behavior. And so mm-hmm. it would, I think, require clarification in the rule. And then, I don't know, like, what do you do if you're the umpire? It's not like you're going to assess a ball to the next pitcher. Like, that's not how that works. So, mm-hmm. you know, then you're, I guess, just getting ready to eject people or something. Yeah. 
One rule change that is not having its intended effect thus far is the rule change intended to cut down on position player pitching, because uh, we've seen an awful lot of that. So <laughs> they they tightened the restrictions yeah. there, so you have to be down eight runs or yes. up ten in the ninth to use a position player, and any time in extras too. So we've seen nine of them already, I think, in the first twelve days of the season. Granted, one of those was our man Nate Eaton of the Royals, who was the subject of one of our Meet a Major Leaguer segments last year, and he was a pitcher in college, so he was coming out pumping 94, but most position player pitchers are not doing that. So that's a lot. So like on pace for yet another high for the umpteenth season in a row. So it seems like they've got to go further if they really want teams to cut down. I don't know whether any any of this is like arms not being built up yet mm. and, and maybe, you know, guys aren't going as deep into games their first turn or two through the rotation sure. as they will later in the year. But given the trend over the past few years, I don't know if we can pin it on that or whether it's just a continuation right. of the same thing. So sounds like, you know, Joshian was uh, basically advocating for making it a rule that you can only use a position player to pitch if the team is carrying fewer than 13 pitchers, you know, otherwise uh, then you're just not allowed to because you have so many pitchers who are real pitchers already. And then yeah. that would have some nice secondary effects of maybe getting more non-relievers on rosters and interesting bench players yeah. in different roles. And then also, you know, requiring uh, pitchers to actually pitch and and maybe getting tired or having to ration out appearances so that you wouldn't be able to throw max effort all the time. I've certainly been in favor of restrictions on, on active pitchers. Anyway, it's just, it's striking because some of these rules changes have worked so well right. that uh, that seems to be the exception, though that's obviously like a less important one and one that people are paying less attention to. Yeah. But it's like, I, I guess it's it's largely the pitch clock that is working so well that everyone is like, wait, MLB did something and it worked? It's like an unfamiliar feeling. It's like- yeah. In recent years, and you know, I don't want to go too far in in praising MLB or or acting as if MLB you know does things for the right reasons all the time. But I would settle for for just sheer competence. Yeah, out of out of MLB, just like it's been a while since the league. Like I don't know when the last time it was that it had a reputation of like they know what they're doing over there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know that any sports commissioner is really popular ever i mean i guess adam silver was sort of popular for a while there recently and then the the shine kind of came off him too like yeah. inevitably like it's just the job of the commissioner basically to to be the bad guy yeah and all commissioners are disliked but it's one thing to be disliked and also sort of respected like yes. right, we, we don't like you but but you seem to know we what you're doing what, we get you know? what you're doing yeah <laughs> yeah and mlb has not had that for a while so that would be a refreshing change, even sure. if it was like, you know, Rob Manfred, don't love the guy, but but at least like, you know, the things he's trying to do, they're they're kind of working in some ways. So there are some ways in, in which they're working. And that just makes me lament all the more that we didn't put the pitch clock in place 
prior to yeah. the zombie runner being put in place because right. then we might have avoided it. We if could the, have avoided if it. If the sequencing had just been different, then I think the, the support would not have been there because it's like, yes. hey, we just lopped off uh, 25 yes. minutes or 30 minutes. We don't need to go putting in this zombie runner nonsense. But now the zombie runner is just in there, even though we if we'd just done it in the opposite way, then we could have been free of that forever. But as it is, we're stuck with it forever. We don't have to be, though. It can always be undone. We need not concede this point. I know they said it's permanent, but we should still hold the line on this as far as I'm <laughs> concerned because the rationale for it was was first that they had safety concerns related to the pandemic. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to litigate those, but I don't think that um, they're clearly operating in a different risk environment now than they were then. Like maybe that's the, the yes. best way to put it. Um, and time savings. And we were always skeptical of the time savings claim anyway, because so few games relative to the rest go, not only go to extras, but go super long into extras. Yeah. Like those marathons. Those, those innings slow down with the zombie right. runner too. So right. there are fewer of them, yes. but also you're you're saving less time than you'd think because it, it's just a slog. Yeah, Precisely, Ben. So yes, keep practicing that speech because you, we <laughs> shouldn't, we shouldn't give up because again, they're, they're, Neither of the rationales hold anymore. They've already decided that they don't care about the first thing in the way that they did before. And like, you know, we know stuff about outside transmission, blah, blah, blah. So like, we're not operating in the same risk environment. And we just lapped off all this time. I was at, Ben, I was at a hockey game last night and I'm sitting there with people I know and behind me are people I don't. And they are talking to other people who they know, who, again, we don't know. And they were asking, hey, have you gotten to a D-backs game this year? And they brought up proactively without sensing the vibe of me having my ears turned back like a cat being like, what are you talking about with baseball? I want to know. I want to know. Praising the pitch clock makes such a difference. You're out mm-hmm. of there in two and a half hours. It moves. It's the most fun I've had. And I want it to be like, isn't some of the fun you had that the Diamondbacks might not be garbage anymore? And that's so... <laughs> but they, in the wild, I observed pitch clock yeah. race. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. was like, oh. Yeah. Sam on his sub stack, he just redid his 10 years ago exercise. Delightful where he, piece. Well done, he, yeah, Sam. He, he, he Loved looked it. to see how many people, also at a Diamondbacks game, yes. right? How many people behind home plate. Everyone actually... is talking about the Diamondbacks, the most <laughs> yeah, exciting right. team in baseball. <laughs> but you look to see just how many people behind home plate are actually paying attention yes. to the game at any given time and watching the pitch. And it's a big difference. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, 15 people in a few half innings sure. uh, separated by a couple, to, by a decade. Uh, don't need to make too much. Much of it, but All limitations also, that Sam acknowledged. Yes, right? he did. But you know, it's harder to look away now. Anyway, I I guess the the slowdown that we get in extra innings with the zombie runner, I guess that is mitigated somewhat by the pitch clock. But but still, anyway, but still, I've, I've not forgotten. Yeah, we 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 will never let it go. <laughs> See my <laughs> earlier discussion of things that happened to me in middle school. I do think that it's like. In much the same way that it is useful for us to distinguish, like, stuff front offices do versus stuff owners mandate. And there's cross-pollination there, right? So I don't want to, like, let people off the hook in a way that's not reasonable. But you're talking about I'm so unaccustomed to, like, crediting the, you know, the league with doing good stuff. And it's like, I'm not accustomed to crediting Rob Manbrand and doing good stuff. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of, I'm not saying you're saying the opposite of this, Ben, mm-hmm. to be clear, but a lot of smart, capable folks who like baseball who work in the league office. 
uh, commissioner. I don't know. I got some feedback. So it's like, it's always a weird thing. And, you know, we're clearly not afraid of or <laughs> reticent to criticize MLB. So that tradition will continue. But I'm always like, who am I talking about? Like specifically. And part of the frustration is that sometimes you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, you just don't yeah. know. You're like, uh, Morgan, no, it's not always Morgan Sword. Sorry, I don't know if Morgan Sword listens to this podcast, but if he does, I apologize for you becoming a minor character because you know you seem nice enough. Yeah, it, it would be nice to feel. It'd be refreshing to feel like there's a, a steady hand on the tiller. Like even right. if the the steady hand was like mostly interested in making more money or whatever. Like sure, I'd, I'd take it. You know, it, it'd be an improvement. So well, and that doesn't have to be anathema to the. To the goals that we have for baseball, right? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. the part of the pitch clock success that is really refreshing is that it it is about the game being better. And it is about the game being better in a way that, like, is in some respects, like, compromising other revenue-generating objectives of either the teams or the league. Like, I don't know this to be true, but... I was having a conversation with someone the other day about like, is it harder for them to do micro betting stuff now because of how fast everything is moving? Yeah. Like maybe also teams, you don't have to keep selling beer into the eighth inning. I get that you're making less on (laughs) concessions, but this seems like a very bad idea in ways that are so obvious that I can't believe we're having to have this conversation. Have you seen this? Yeah. Yeah. That was a bad. bad. Yeah. Well, I didn't Manfred say that like there hasn't been a difference really in concession sales. I think you did say that in the minors too. They didn't see that there was a difference. Like it's, you know, maybe if you're going to get a certain number of beers or hot dogs or whatever, like you'll just do it in a shorter span of time or whatever. So it doesn't seem like there's a, a big difference there. Actually, I'm seeing what he said was they think the reason for the lack of decline in concession sales is that people kind of in their head have two and a half hours set aside to do this baseball game. So before the clock, if two and a half hours was at the end of six innings, they were gone. Okay. Now they stayed until the end of the game and we've seen absolutely no decline on the concession side, which is good, I guess. But yeah, if the Brewers and maybe other teams are extending beer sales into the eighth inning, then you will have people going right from drinking to driving. If the goal is to allow more time for blood alcohol content to decrease, then you should actually be cutting off sales earlier since the innings take less time. Anyway, you mentioned the pace of play. There was uh, something we talked about, I think, two years ago because Rob Manford said that Adam Silver had had advised him, like, don't you know, don't, don't monkey with this. Yeah, because, don't. Yeah, right. Like, don't badmouth the the pace of play because hey, it's going to be a gold mine for you. <laughs> right. So the fact that he did go against that, I, I guess that's to their credit. Anyway, the last thing I I wanted to mention is just uh, these Royals shifts that are yeah. going on here. So the the Royals have been the most adventurous when it comes to trying unorthodox outfield alignments. They have been. Because yeah. you can still do some funny stuff in the outfield if you want to, but we weren't sure really whether anyone would because it's quite risky yeah. to uh, monkey around with your alignments out there. And we have not seen a shift violation yet, have we? Like there, I don't think there so. There yeah. have been... There have been some fielders who are so close to the line that they could kiss it, but like I don't think that we've actually seen someone get called for a violation. Yeah, I think maybe maybe Elvis Andrus had one, which oh maybe. 
I think it was, I, I think it was that he like, he had his heels in the grass or something. Oh, it, it sure. wasn't like he was too, he was too deep, I think maybe Got more it. so than he, I think there was one, but it took quite a while. Yeah. Anyway. There hasn't been like a rash of them no, or anything though. No, not at all. But the Royals have been trying these, uh, I don't know what to to call it exactly. It's, it's not a five man infield. It, it's like. Sort of a, a two, two man, man outfield. outfield. It's like a two and a half man. <laughs> it's like a two and a half man outfield, two or four and a half man infield. I guess would be oh, the no, very no. succinct I'm way to say it. <laughs> I'm imagining Charlie Sheen wearing royal powder blue. <laughs> Terrible. But but what they do basically is like they'll have one outfielder kind of uh, in right center and one outfielder in left center, and then they'll have the third outfielder. Basically playing where the overshifted infielder would have been Correct. before. So yeah. like shallow right field. Yeah. And they did this, you know, in spring training and, and other teams were doing this in spring training, like experimenting with it, you know, largely against Joey Gallo. Um, yeah. But, but the Royals have done it a whole bunch of times now yeah. and not just against Joey Gallo. No, so they did like, it against a bunch of giants. Yeah. I mean. So, so <laughs> <laughs> Joey Gallo's a big guy too. Yeah. But, but Ben Clemens just, he investigated whether this makes sense in theory against Gallo. And he found that like maybe, probably, yeah. like barely, yeah. perhaps. But Gallo is extreme, obviously. Yes. And if it, barely maybe make sense against Gallo, then it will not make sense against the vast majority of hitters. And they're doing it pretty often. They've done it like 24 times now. And I don't know how many of those were against Gallo, but it's often not against Gallo. And like to go back to Tom Tango again, he back in December, he wrote a, a post that his blog headlined, will clubs use a two outfield alignment? And the first word was no. And then he <laughs> ran through why he didn't think that would happen because it just doesn't make sense and it's too risky and you're leaving open too much real estate. And if something falls, then it's going to be an extra base hit and right. it'll really make you pay. And it just doesn't seem to make sense in theory. So the Royals have been doing it, and Tango tweeted the numbers. So they've allowed, with this shift on the 24 times that they've done it, a 510 WOBA. So that is not good. That no. is like uh, Peak Barry Bonds had <laughs> roughly that <laughs> weighted on base average. So so that's not good if you're yeah. turning every hitter into Barry Bonds. No, seems bad. Yeah, but... You know, I mean, it's a small sample, 24 right. times. And and part of that is because like three home runs were hit. And you might say, well, it's not fair to, to count that against it because those wouldn't have been caught anyway. But, you know, as Russell Carlton and others have shown, you can't necessarily discount that hitters will do different things when the shift is on and pitchers will do different things. And so those home runs might not have been hit. Otherwise, uh, players, you know, they adjust in, in unpredictable ways. But even if you ignore the walks and the strikeouts and the homers, like all of the, the non-ball-in-play outcomes, then they've given up five hits on 14 balls in play. That's a 357 BABIP, which is still not good. That's yeah. uh, still considerably higher than the league average. And there was one time when it it 
basically worked like against uh, Gallo, but I think it was MJ Melendez was yes. playing short right. He kind of booted the ball. Yeah, he he boofed it basically because you he know boofed it, it. Yeah, it was like a grounder to him, but he's not you know experienced playing in that position, and and he just bobbled it. But still, like you know, it'd be one thing if. In theory, it seemed like it should work, and it was not working thus far. Then I'd say, oh, just stick with it. It'll work in the in the long run. Like that's the problem. That's you know the only rule is it has to work. We we brought that up in in the book because it was like when we did a shift for the first time, it was like part of that. It had a double meaning. Like the only rules it has to work. We meant well. It it can be something weird and strange and unorthodox, and all that really matters is whether it works. But also, right. we kind of meant it has to work like the first time we try it right. because if it doesn't, that everyone will revolt. Yes, and, and I guess to their credit, they have stuck with this. Yeah. I don't know if it's to their credit because I don't know if it makes sense, but they have yeah. at least shown some persistence here. Yeah. But it it in, on paper it it doesn't seem like it would be that well advised and and the results haven't been great either so i i wonder how long they will keep this up yeah sometimes you wonder like i appreciate teams like the royals because i do think that they are sometimes like providing a service in a way because they're not like a good team and we don't expect them to do a whole lot this year um but they're not like they're like respectable in some ways, right? Like they're not mm-hmm. uh, the worst team in baseball by any means. And so they still have incentive to like try some stuff, but like they also have, I imagine enough like k- k- mental cushion in terms of their expectations for what their season might produce that they're like, well, we can stick with it and see how it goes. And and so I appreciate teams like, I don't know if this makes sense. Now, Ben was quick to point out and to admit that like he had to make a number of assumptions in doing his analysis of this. And so, you know, teams have access to more precise positioning data than, than we do. And so, you know, there are assumptions in his piece where if you go a different way or you have a, a more robust data set that allows you to, to get in the weeds on some of this stuff, like maybe it changes some of the outcome a little bit, but intuitively, like his conclusion made sense to me when I was editing it. I didn't come away being like, I don't know, Ben, I don't quite buy this. So I can't imagine the effect would be like that dramatically different, but maybe, maybe we're wrong, Ben. I kind of feel like if I were a Royals fan, even if this seems counterproductive, I might be encouraged that the Royals are trying it yeah, just because it's such totally. an Royals thing to do. Yes. <laughs> you know, like the Mike Matheny Royals, I don't think they would have been, you know, trying the, the strangest out there no. defensive alignments, right? And so Yeah, I don't think so. The fact that they have kind of a new field staff and it's like, yeah. you know, ex uh, raise people and, you know, from from more perhaps forward thinking organizations and everyone's hoping that that will mean that their player development will improve and some of those guys will take steps forward. Like if the cost of that is that maybe they go a little too far when it comes to trying some some off the wall shift stuff. If that were to correlate with, well, they're open to new ideas yeah. and they're putting new things into practice, doesn't mean that they'll be good at anything else, but it does kind of confirm that, like, this is a new Royals, you know, yeah. like the old Royals wouldn't have done this. And even if this specific instance is not for the best, it 
kind of makes you encouraged about other things that they might do differently. Yeah, just get Vinny and Pasquantino out there to explain it to everyone and sure. come away so charmed that they'll be like, ah, mm-hmm. can't wait to see what they get up to. I don't know why <laughs> Orioles fans would have that accent because I don't even know what that accent was. But yeah. All right. Well, I guess we can wrap up with the the pass blast. Unless, uh, do you want to tell people about the uh, the ball person collision that you've been enjoying? Well, I have to credit our producer Shane with yes. bringing this to to my attention because I had missed it live and he saw it in person. Yeah. Um, but there there was indeed a collision mm-hmm. um, in, between um, the Guardians and the Mariners um, bat uh, bat ball. <laughs> children <laughs> boys <Yes. laughs> young men I, it's hard to tell yeah uh, in the collision the the age of these young people um but <laughs> uh you know the the clip that you can see on the mariners broadcast is funny to start because first you see a woman look very concerned and you see the man next to her dying laughing <laughs> you're like yeah. what are they seeing what are they seeing off camera you know you're looking at sort of an open side view of miles straw and you know then george kirby delivers a pitch and then the root logo comes in and in the foreground you can see these two ball young men run into each other <laughs> they are in slow-mo they the the mariners ball kid gets knocked down i mean you know, this is in Cleveland, and so both of these young people are employed by the the Cleveland Guardians. So you do have, in some in some ways, like guardian on guardian crime here. Um, but in in the rush, seemingly to um, deliver balls quickly, in compliance with MLB's mandate, we had a we had a near near tragedy. We had a collision. Yeah. We had, you know, I, are these kids entitled to workers' comp? Like. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, it's dangerous. We can't have lollygagging ball people anymore. So (sighs) it's an injury risk now. They could be colliding with each other. And I don't, I don't want to laugh too hard because at this, at this time, I do not know the, um, the current state of either of these young people and how Mm -hmm. this might have shifted their perception of baseball, um, Mm -hmm. or if they sustained any injury that has uh, potentially lingering effects. So I hope that that is not true. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, I will say that if um, there are any issues, I hope they send the bill directly to Rob Manfred. Mm-hmm. So thank you All to right. Shane for pointing that out to yeah, us because I, I was like, oh, goodness. Link to that on the show page for everyone else yeah. to enjoy and laugh. Not too hard, but Not a moderate hard. amount. Yeah. Not as hard as the collision seemed to be, <laughs> yeah. which seems, you know, some of it is that it is in slow-mo, you know, um, mm-hmm. and – some of it is that I think they really, I think they really got each other. <laughs> yeah. All right. So our past blast last time was about detachable bases and uh, having a breakaway base that would perhaps reduce injuries. And just as I was putting that up, Ronald Acuna Jr. like stole a base, literally, like yes. he stole second base, and the base detached came away he- with him. Yeah, so even though we don't have those breakaway bases, I, I guess uh, you can break them away under the right circumstances. You just and, have to be as strong as Ronald Acuna Jr. Yeah, he was holding it for a while, and Ozzy Albee said, I thought he was just going to score with it in his hands, which... <laughs> That's great. Did make me, we got a question from listener Andrew, who said, like, what would have happened if he'd kept running with the base in his arms yeah. before anyone had called time on the play? Could he be tagged out if he's holding 
second base, would he have had to drop right. second base before yeah. he could touch third base? Or is the umpire simply compelled to declare the play dead at a certain point? And perhaps most important, has this ever happened or been tried before? <laughs> so, yes, I mean, the bigger bases, I guess, make it a little harder to run around with the bases in your arms. But but yes, could you just run away with the bases and say, well, you can't can't catch me because uh, I'm the stinky cheese man. I got the base in my hands here. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, do you remember the Stinky Cheese Man book from I when do. we were kids? Clearly, yeah. The art was really cool in that <laughs> it one. It was. Stinky yeah. Cheese Man. Yeah. Well, see, you get to, I get it, because you get to read it again and not feel like a weirdo. That's nice. <laughs> well, we have not actually gotten to the Stinky Cheese Man again, so I don't know what made that come to my mind. <laughs> but, mm. but yeah, I mean, I think you can. I remember reading an article a few years ago about uh, whether you could carry the bat around the bases right. because uh, some players were doing that, right? Like Alex Bregman and Juan Soto, they had in the World Series, I, I think they had kind of like, a, you know, challenge each other to carry the bases, carry the bat around the bases. And I think it was concluded that in theory, there's no rule against just carrying the bat all the way around the bases right. on your home run trot, you could do it. Maybe it would be seen as showing up the opposition. Uh, perhaps an umpire would step in, but there didn't seem to be any rule against it. But when it comes to like making away with the base, I think that would probably be frowned upon. Uh, <laughs> is there a yeah. specific rule against that? Uh, I'd have to check, I guess. I don't know. If you, you haven't committed the entire rule book to memory, I guess. But I uh, I, Yeah, I, I need to look it up. Yeah, you know, that, even that, lawyers. That's why they have all those books, Ben. You know, they got reference stuff. Yeah, that's, it seems like kind of an obvious loophole. Like, you know, right. you can't have a force play if uh, it's like the, the guy tapping his head meme. You know, can't, can't have a force play if you just take the base and run away with yeah. it. So feels I like would, not touching can't get mad. Not touching yeah. can't get mad. <laughs> I think probably you could not get away with that. Anyway, that brings us to our new pass blast, 1992. And this comes from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston, who writes, 1992, the league seeks fan input on potential changes. Mm. Sounds familiar. In 1992, while considering a modification to the league's format, MLB's commissioner's office sought fan insight on potential changes. According to a December 20th, 1992 Orlando Sentinel article written by Gordon Eads, MLB mailed surveys to randomly selected season ticket holders asking their opinions on division realignment, interleague play, expanding the number of playoff teams, and getting rid of the DH. Per the article, a cover letter accompanying the survey read, Major League Baseball is currently going through some exciting times. In the years ahead, there may be some innovations that will create greater interest in the game. Fans were presented with a series of options for each topic. For playoff expansion, under Plan B, the top two teams in each of the then four divisions, eight total, would qualify for the playoffs. How quaint, a mere eight teams qualifying for the playoffs. Plan C, dubbed more radical by Eads, would divide each league into three divisions and send each division winner and one wildcard team in each league to the playoffs. Can you imagine? Pigs would fly. For interleague play, option A called for 10 interleague games, while option B saw each team playing 28 interleague games, two apiece against each of the 14 teams in the opposing league. A third choice, option C, suggested more than 10, but fewer than 28 interleague games. Further questions asked whether the DH should be abolished, used in interleague games, or just used in American League games, and what fans thought about league and division realignment based on geography. 
So this was 1992. This was prior to the most recent two rounds of MLB expansion. But obviously, some of these changes came to pass. Realignment and interleague play and uh, divisions and expanding the number of playoff teams. A lot of that stuff happened. Yeah. And David looked to see if he could find any follow-ups, any further coverage about what the fans actually said, what the responses to the survey were but he couldn't turn up anything. And that seems to be the case uh, recently because MLB is constantly polling and putting surveys out. We never seem to hear what the results were, which- Yeah, how about that? I guess it makes sense that uh, they would want to keep that quiet, but- be nice. It's like, hey, if we're giving you this data on what we want, then then you should have to share with us what the wisdom of crowds actually was so that we could know what fans want and know if you're going against what fans want. I guess they probably want to reserve the right to do things that fans might not want. So yeah. they might not want to put that out there and advertise that a given rule change is unpopular. And I guess, you know, there could be times where fans are against something and really they should be forced to take their medicine, you know? I mean, yeah. fans probably would have been against the pitch clock at least yep. at a certain point. And, and maybe that's for the best that they were forced to come to like it. But it would be nice. I'm always curious. Yeah. Like sometimes you'll hear tidbits like in an interview with you, Epstein will talk about how, you know, fans want contact and they want triples and they want doubles and that sort of thing. But I'd like to see the results. Anyway, I don't yeah. know what the results were of the 92 survey, but either they endorsed the changes that were subsequently made or MLB just went ahead and did it anyway. But nothing new for MLB to be taking the temperature of the fan base when it comes to making some changes to increase the audience's interest. Nothing new under the sun. Nope. All right. Speaking of nothing new under the sun, you may have seen a study that was done by some researchers at Dartmouth about the effect of global warming on home runs. Some people have emailed us about this. The conclusion seems almost self-evident to me. We know that the average temperature has increased, and we've known for a long time that the ball carries farther and that more homers are hit in warmer weather. So yeah, it follows that global warming has caused a very small increase in homers. Even according to the study, it's about 1% of homers hit annually. When I got the press release about this, I remembered that Tim McCarver was talking about this back in 2012, although he was exaggerating the effects of warming on the flight of the ball. But Alan Nathan wrote a piece for Baseball Prospectus for me back then, showing that, yeah, there is a relationship. Temperatures go up, the ball flies farther, you get a few more homers. Anyway, I don't think we learned a lot from this study. I guess the point is probably using a fun subject like baseball to bring attention to an unfun subject like the impact and importance of climate change. And hey, if this is the story that gets some people to pay attention to climate change, great. I have enjoyed, though, that every article about this has included some sort of caveat about how additional homers aren't the only byproduct of climate change. Like the AP story said, both Texas A&M's Andrew Dessler and University of Illinois' Don Woobles said, while the rise in home runs is interesting, it pales next to the issues of extreme weather and rising seas. Yes, I would say so. (laughs) Good to keep things in perspective. A few more homers hit every year. 
not the most important byproduct of climate change. Also, speaking of things that are not new, the Rays won again, so they're 11-0. They have now outscored their opponents 83-20. to So that's a plus 63 run differential, which Joshian noted is the fifth highest run differential over any 11-game span since expansion 1961. So not just to start the season, at any point in the season. Although it's funny, the best run differential over any 11-game span, the 98 Yankees plus 74... Also, the 93 Tigers plus 74. The 93 Tigers weren't even particularly good. They won 85 games. They finished third in the AL East. Then you had the 2021 Astros. They were good. The 1979 Angels, who were pretty good. 88 and 74, won the West, lost in the ALCS. Then these Rays and then the 2019 Astros, who were quite good. So again, a bit of a mixed bag. You don't have to be an all-time great team to have an all-time great 11 games. Pretty great to be a Rays fan right now, though. And even though we called for a cessation of injuries... Bunch more players went on the IL after we recorded. Matt Manning, he has a foot fracture. Marquez, it sounds like, is going on the IL. Seth Brown, an oblique strain. Brandon Woodruff, shoulder inflammation. The aforementioned Joey Gallo, intercostal strain. Enough already. Cut it out, I say. Finally, we got an email from Polly in Calgary. The Blue Jays started the season on a 10-game road trip. During that stretch, Brandon Belt hit terribly with a 043 batting average. Tuesday was their first game in Toronto, and he goes three for four. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Chicken tenders. I'm with you, Polly. No doubt about it. Today's Excellent Effectively Wild intro theme was by listener Jimmy Kramer. You can keep your submissions coming to podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free and get themselves access to some perks. Zach Faust, Anton Pease, Justin Dieters, Walter, and Lugens Malort. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. We also do monthly bonus episodes for our Patreon supporters. You get access to playoff live streams. You get discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and much, much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. You can also contact us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter. If not, you can email us, podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. <laughs>